This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell for Software Engineering Radio. Today, I have with me Burkai. Burkai is the co-founder of OpsGenie, which is, I think, now an Atlassian company and an expert on modern incident management practices. Burkai, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hey, Adam. Thanks. So I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about, you know, what is an incident management process? And if I'm a developer and my organization is trying to introduce some sort of process, what type of things do I need to know? So I thought a good place to start would be like, what's an incident? Yeah, the incident is anything that's unexpected that disrupts the systems or applications, whatever you're running, that's unplanned, unexpected. Why do I need a, a management process for that? This became more of a, a importance or a priority in the uh, later years as the expectations of the users and the customers for availability of a service, uh, reliability, performance, security increased, as well as the, the pressure in the market to innovate and do things faster and faster. Like the rate of change also changed. There, there might be an incident that if the organization reacts fast enough to prevent the uh, impact on the users as well and resolve it before the customers or users are impacted by that incident as well. So it's often a race against time. And you know, the, as the developers uh, or the people operating the, the service, we want to make sure that we either mitigate the impact that uh, as little as possible or you know, ideally prevent the impact from happening by responding on time, finding the problem and resolving as quickly as possible. So that's interesting. So if we act fast enough, we might actually prevent there from being any impact. What, what common causes of incidents do you see? By far, the most common cause of incidents is change. Yeah. And the, the rate of change increased, as you know, I'm sure you know, uh, in the recent years with all the, you know, the DevOps and all the paradigms that came with it. Uh, and the rate of change is really the the biggest driver of incidents uh, in the in our systems and so that would make me think that the way to prevent incidents is to slow down change is that the approach <laughs> it is a common approach but uh, uh, the research kind of indicates that it isn't true so the uh, the that's actually a typical friction point in in organizations uh, the developers would like to because with Business wants things to change or, you know, new things to come out uh, as fast as possible. Developers tries to push those things. And the operations folks are typically resisting change because the change is what introduces all the, uh, you know, instability problems to the system. And uh, in the traditional uh, enterprise, there's a major friction between dev and ops. Uh, they push in different directions. And uh, in the last decade, the, the, the DevOps movement attempts to address that by having the Changing all the the paradigm and developers and operations folks working together, breaking that silo so that that negative dynamic is not there. So there are uh, different ways to solve that. If you make frequent changes, small changes, you minimize the uh, the sort of the rate of failure. Or when there is a failure, you can address it very quickly because as you make frequent changes, each change is very small. Yeah, if I can. Take the other side because it sounds interesting. Yeah. To me, it sounds like that's actually making more changes, right? You're saying change causes incidents, but now, you know, instead of releasing every week, we're going to release every day. That sounds like more change to me, more places where things can break. Yeah, that's where, that's where it's, it's somewhat, you know, intuitively you go the other direction uh, initially. But it, again, the, what we find ourselves as well, that when the change is small, you, you kind of accept that some, some portion of that will cause a problem, but uh, you can address that. So the, typically in this, they want to look at the change failure rate, how often the change causes a problem. Uh, the other, uh, the metric is the, how long it takes you to restore it. So like you try to reduce the number of failures, but also like how long it takes you to find the time to determine and fix the problem. 
the unexpected maybe thing is that when you do fewer changes, the changes are like you do one change, but it has a lot of things in it because you know the developers keep developing, right? So like it's actually not one change. Like you just have one big change that has hundred changes in it, and if that breaks something. Uh, it's typically very difficult to find what it is. So the mean time to repair keeps getting longer and longer. And, uh, you know, you can't prevent uh, the customer's uh, impact in those cases. There are a number of practices that the dev teams came up with in the recent years. One of them is like feature flagging, uh, canary stuff. Like So you can kind of uh, roll out tests and, uh, with a subset of users before you, you know, roll out to everybody else. But the key is really, they know exactly what they've done and how they would detect the problem, uh, like if, if it didn't work. So the, the time to awareness of the problem uh, and the ability to dissect what the problem is, troubleshoot is, is much higher because the developer knows what they've done. And because the change is smaller, so the number of options that you have to check is not that high either. So they can quickly uh, revert the, the change or, or fix it or whatever. So it's uh, interesting that the, the, the body of research indicates that uh, these type of uh, frequent change uh, makes the system more stable uh, and not, not less, which is a, yeah interesting concept. Yeah, definitely. Can you define feature flagging and canary builds and then maybe explain how they'd help? Sure. Let's say you have 100,000 users that use your system and you make a change and you expose uh, all of them. If there is a failure, it's going to impact everybody. Like, so you have a significant problem versus the canary one. You can uh, put a cohort of 1,000 people and enable the feature for them first. If there is a problem, you still had a problem, but only 1% of your users got impacted by that. Uh, so that's, you know, uh, I think in the uh, core of it, the fact that you just accept that there will be a problem and no amount of testing in advance in the lab and so on will tell you, like, will make it sure that in production when you deploy, uh, it's going to work. So you're deploying in production, but containing it to a, uh, the blast radius to a small uh, radius so that uh, if there's a problem, you roll it back, but the impact is, you know, much smaller than what it would be. And the feature flagging is sort of a similar concept that you can you sort of uh, uh, separate the deployment of the features from enablement of the feature. Like you deploy the feature and then slowly turn it on for people using the feature flag or customers. Like it, you know, in SaaS, uh, we have customers as tenants, so you can enable for one tenant, five tenants. You know, and if it goes okay, but you look at metrics and you enable for more people. Uh, so it's a more controlled approach to handle that the inevitable, like uh, there will be something wrong. Uh, I think the, the approach to assume that there won't be incidents and try to prevent incidents proven to be like, uh, it's you, you'll lose that battle. So it's better to be prepared for it, like that this will happen. And if it does happen, what do you do? Like, so one part is to have a, a process, an incident management process that's uh, ready. So you don't, have to think of anything like you know exactly what's going to happen yeah you get to the right person as quickly as possible like escalate you know when how long you're going to wait to escalate you know which person do you go depending on time of day if you have 24 7 services in different continents you can leverage the business hours and wherever like all that who are, who are you going to uh, tell otherwise the stakeholders you know the business users or maybe legal you know the communications depending on how it is there are a lot of decisions and the, the incident management process of preparing all that in advance, like if this type of incident happens, you know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, so you're not uh, scrambling during the incident. So you kind of prepare for it in advance in peacetime is, the, uh, is one of the aspects you mitigate by lim limiting the time, time it takes to uh, resolve problems. In peacetime, so I like this a metaphor where if there's no incidents, we're at peace, and if there is, we're That's at war. Right. Is and the more, the more, the more <laughs> you invest during peacetime, the less you know trouble you have during wartime, so to speak. Uh, I think this is the terminology the firefighters uh, use. Like uh -huh. the, they have a pretty uh, mature incident management process. Like we've taken a lot of what uh, what they've done there. There's a book on this by a few old timers uh, firefighters that uh, took that and sort of are going through the 
They have a practice that they actually teach organizations how to do this. And they have a book on this like that, you know, some of the terminology that, uh, you know, I took from from there kind of makes sense, easy to understand. Well, that's super interesting. Well, I want to go back to something you said about not focusing on, on not having incidents. So I would assume that our goal would be that we are able to reduce it so that we never actually have to run this process. But what you're saying seems to indicate that's maybe not the way. Yeah, it's again, maybe it's not as as the intuitive thing that we, we did find that that it is not the way, both ourselves as well as the customer. So the when we looked at the data, the just to uh, see the companies, the organizations that have incidents and respond to them, let's say, you know, almost daily. Uh, and, and this is the part like the incident is not always a, already impact, but uh, you have some in advance, like something is going to break or you have redundancy and one of the redundant sites is gone, like your customers still work, but you are exposed and so on. The companies that have incidents frequently are much more mature in their, how they handle it. The ones that don't have any anything and there's an alert that something is broken about the incident, but uh, they only get like one couple of alerts a month. They're much more like uh, uh, sluggish because there is no muscle in the organization to how to how to respond, mm. uh, and you know, because no one really knows what's going to happen. Uh, like they try to scramble, figure out like who to tell, what to put in a, a communications to the customers, and so on. Versus the ones that have things and respond and hopefully prevent, uh, they have that muscle. Like our internal teams get quite a lot of alerts based on things that can like daily. Uh, we kind of err on the side of uh, caution because it's a pretty critical service, the service we run Opsini, and it needs to be very highly available because other organizations rely on it to tell them. Uh, so the the team and the person that's on call during the day, they get uh, you know alerts, respond to it. So they know uh, almost muscle memory what, what to do right, when there is an... And also it reduces, we find, that stress level. Like the, it's not a a very odd sort of a black swan type of an event. Like it happens, you know what to do. Uh, so it's a like a calmer situation than a, a, like when it's a very rare kind of a, a thing to do. Because uh, we find that the fear of the incident, especially for on-call pe- people, was causing significant uh, stress. And the, like the someone is on-call, you know, you think that they will be woken up when there's a problem, but like they have sleep problems, like the, all these things that even the, there is no incident, there is an impact on their lives, because it, especially if they're not accustomed to it. So in our internal process, it takes about a, almost a year for some for an engineer to be night on call alone, like when there's a problem. Uh, so we, we get them, they are on call during the day for a, quite a while. So when there are others around and you know, they're not alone, they can get help qu- quite quickly to build the confidence level. And as they do that, uh, at some point between, you know, six to 12 months, they become, you know, night on call and uh, they're much more confident and the uh, stress level goes down significantly in that sense because they have, the you know, gone through that motion uh, many times before. That's an interesting transition to the kind of developer perspective. If I join Ops Genie, I haven't worked someplace before with the incident process. Do I start an incident? What do I do if some service that I own is acting up? Yeah, so there is maybe two different ways of working on this. One, uh, we find, uh, again, the more mature organizations that have higher demands on uh, reliability and security have a lot of automation. So we have a ton of monitoring systems, external, internal, that generate alerts, basically. So the, these automated systems, when there's a problem or there might be a problem, they generate alerts. And those alerts go to the on-call person to investigate. So at that point, there might not be an incident, like it might be a preliminary. Uh, but if they think there is an incident, they initiate the process. In some cases, you know, is there an incident? It's very clear. Then you automatically start the incident process as well. So in other organizations, incidents come from users reporting something, right? Like the the external, and then you start the incident process and start bringing the people in. So it's either automated through the monitoring systems or a a human initiates the incident process. So I get an alert. It says, 
I don't know, this database is at 99% or something. Yeah, yeah. And then I make a call. So what do I do if I decide it's an incident and how do I make that call? And that, that's the part, at least in our case, I think you have to give the confidence that it's okay to, like if they believe that, you know, pull the lever, so to speak. And, uh, and it, <laughs> it, the first thing they have to do is to understand the, the impact of the incident. Like, is it a, a something small? Is it something big? Uh, like one team, multi-team. So like depending on the level of impact, there's a different incident process. Uh, and the organization, the teams typically set that up. Like if it's a priority one incident impacting customers, there is a incident process that is different than uh, it impacts, you know, like 1% of the users and it's, you know, they can do their stuff, but it's, you know, it's a UI problem, for example, like there is a different level. And the first thing that the on-call person does is to assess that, like, is it something that can wait till the morning? You know, you don't, or it has to be all hands on deck and there's a different, based on the priority they set on the incident, it would trigger a different process. And that person doesn't really have to know everything about the process. They just need to set the priority uh, and in our case, like our, the, the Opsini system would trigger a different flow. Like if it is a all hand on, hands on deck, maybe it's three, four different teams. You need someone from each and it will start the notification process for each of the teams and uh, track the process, each of them coming to a Zoom session, for example, to address it. In other, you know, less priority, it's maybe it's just one team, one person. If they can isolate what service uh, the problem is then you just add that team as a responder to the incident and the, that team's incident process kicks in to determine like who from that team should be notified and how it should escalate and so on. How do I actually pull the flag at, at Ops Genie? I'm sure it varies, but yeah. you know, what do you do? Yeah, you can, uh, if you're in Slack, you can say, you know, create incident and that would start there are a bunch of different ways or there's a, like a menu action that you create incident and you can manually create a new incident. So it could be a fresh incident. It could be like you can also group number of alerts and then say like these alerts are all related to this one incident. So you can have a incident process and associate those alerts to it so that the people coming in can can see that because it's not all, it's typically not one alert. Like when something significant happens, you know, we have a bunch of different monitoring systems, most of our most organizations do. They all start sending alerts, and uh, gets pretty noisy. Like if it's a if it's a bigger one. You mentioned Zoom, so yeah, I start an incident, and it starts a Zoom room, and I jump in it. And what happens? Other people join, or not all incidents are handled through video conferencing. It's typically uh, reserved to more higher priority, higher impact stuff. Like that's the you know incident. If you set priority one, maybe you initiate it. Zoom conference kind of a thing. If it's priority two, it might be just chat that you handle through uh, the chat system. Uh, the different teams do different setups there, but that's typically done in peacetime to, to be ready when it happens. I think there's an incident. I start it. Yeah. So it starts a Slack channel. I'm not sure of like two things. First of all is who to bring in. And second of all is how to figure out what the impact is. What should I do next? It depends on your internal systems in some some ways, but uh, our approach is that the Opschini kind of uh, uh, provides this concept of services. So each team can define the services they have, they're providing, and other teams can create dependencies that I use this team service uh, so that you kind of see uh, like uh, that uh, in, a, in our root cause investigation. Like uh, you asked early, like what is the cause of the incidents? Uh, and like I mentioned the changes and there is a flavor of it that if it's not a change that you introduced, it's typically a change that someone else introduced that, that like your service mm -hmm. depends on their service and they have a problem impacting you. Uh, so you, that's what you, you're trying to see, like where is the, you're trying to isolate the problem, like to, to determine the right response, like the who, who you're going to need depending on what services are impacted. If you, if you have put some work on it, uh, like the, if this service is impacted, you know, a priority one incident on this service would trigger a response time that I need people from these, these, these teams, and then you, they would get notified into one place. And at that point, you are investigating, uh, like we do provide tools like for different services incidents, you can 
run actions to trigger like the most common things that uh, you want to, it's a website, is it still up, right? Like you can check that. It's a, maybe the DNS resolution to see, like you run a trace route to see like how the network stuff is. You can put those into the incident and typically the organizations uh, that are more mature have run books basically because you want uh, even the junior people to be able to go through the first steps to understand like where it is. Uh, run books typically have the actions like do this first, do that next kind of things. And they start from who to bring in. Uh, if the system doesn't support it, that will be manually in the in the run book. Progressively, they go into more investigative steps like, okay, run this command check whether this is working or, or like the, the typical things to do. But I think, you know, those steps are very useful in uh, identifying the right course of action in terms of what should the response should be. The conflict is often because there's, you know, like lots of, of these things happen. So you want to wake everybody up, so to speak, if it is a real problem but you don't want to wake everybody up if it isn't a, a problem. So you get that uh, sort of a tugging in both directions and that type of a, a setup, you know, this is the run book, this is how you decide. It reduces, again, the, the pressure on the, the people who are responding, initial like first responders, so to speak, to the, to the incident to, to call. Like you don't want to blame them for, for doing that uh, if, they, if they need to pull it. Uh, and that's where you like the more context you give to them uh, and uh, empower them to identify. Because if they don't have that information, it's, uh, they become sort of a, you know, don't have the tools to make the decision. And no matter what they do, like there's an implication to it. Like you, 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 you don't want them to hesitate to call people because they're, you know, afraid of what uh, people will say and so on. Yeah, it seems like a hard balance to to find. I yeah, guess. yeah, it is harder for the junior ones uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they don't want to wake everybody up. Yeah. So I I see that the database is really high usage. So I start an incident. I go to the run book. The run book says, you know, check. Okay, three services use this. Are they up? And it's like, oh yeah, they're up. And maybe then the usage starts to fall down. So what do I do? Is that is that the end for that particular incident? Like maybe the impact is is minor, or if the impact is minor, typically again, depending on when it is, that uh, like if it's work hours, you may solve that. Uh, the each team handles differently. Like the, I think one of the things that is impactful is that there are low frequency, high impact incidents. Like when those happen, they don't happen very often, but when it happens, it makes the news, so to speak. You know, the if it is a big <laughs> company. And there's lots of high frequency, low impact ones. All, all that spectrum is really necessary to, to have peaceful uh, development time. <laughs> <laughs> the developers are impacted by the, like the, one of the things that we've just done, like showing the, uh, we call the unplanned work, you know, like anytime you're working on incidents, you're doing unplanned work and it impacts your planned work, which, you know, Tassin you know, has Jira, as you may know. Yeah. And when you're planning the next sprint or something like that, if you don't know the level of unplanned work, it's often the cause of friction. And uh, it's also like uh, messes up with your planning, like, because you think it's this many hours. So like we try to combine the unplanned work, like how much time the team collectively spent in the last sprint uh, so that you can kind of uh, try to gauge like is it going up or down like is your unplanned time percentage wise uh, overall is it going up so at ops genie what level of unplanned would you feel is a problem i would say 20 percent is pretty high if, if you if you continuously have that we, we try to reduce that quite lower than that uh, i think we are somewhat fortunate in the sense that it's pretty clear that this service needs to be reliable. So like, I, I, you know, we don't have to justify it, right? Like it's, yeah. if, it's not, if it's not reliable, business is no longer there. I find it is harder for some of my colleagues, friends, uh, you know, like, do I build a new feature or invest more into, you know, cleaning up the code to reduce technical debt and so on? Uh, it's not always easy. So like that's that's what we're trying to help with like in the product to show like how much time you're spending because it's often intuitive. I'm spending too much time, but you can't quantify the impact of that. Like if you can invest and reduce the unplanned time, you know, a few percentage points, like it opens up additional capacity later that you can invest in development. And uh, 
the worst I think when when people see the unplanned time is kind of creeping up, like the it's you mm-hmm. know on the way up versus down. It's it's more of a like which way it's going. Like if it's going at least you're you you know you can see the light at the end of the tunnel if it's going down. If it's going up, like you're gonna be in bigger trouble. So it's more than the number. It's probably the trend of like which direction is heading is is more important uh, probably for most teams it sort of uh, damages the morale uh, as well and so like it becomes a vicious circle uh, like it really is key to like nip it on early on and make sure that it doesn't creep up so just being aware of that like how much unplanned time you have spent uh, every cycle i think is uh, super useful for teams to not to get into that like uh, vicious cycle so to speak got it so you said that there are certain sort of high frequency low impact incidents that may be happening could you give some examples of getting people's attention yeah the cloud infrastructure is designed to to fail right like that was the biggest thing like we used to design all these like super resilient stuff and like assume that they will never fail or at least tried that versus like, you know, you're running AWS cloud, like stuff fails all the time. Uh, so you're, you get 500. So the queue starts building up because there's some kind of problem somewhere and it starts routing around that. So every time, you know, an SQS queue, for example, builds up is, a, is an alert. Uh, sometimes it, it's, you know, uh, resolves because additional resources are automatically provisioned. Sometimes it doesn't. So there are, some automated ways or manual ways to handle the the problems. Uh, like maybe one of the servers went down uh, and uh, you got some bunch of 500, but they, they got retried and going through that. One school of thought is uh, like, you don't have to worry about those till there is a customer impact. Mm-hmm. I find that if you can get away with it, that's the, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> easier approach, right? Like if, uh, if you don't have to react to problems until there is a customer impact, uh, which you know your business requirements might allow that, that is a, a lower burden on the you know, de- developers and operations people. We can't afford that. Like you know, if we had multiple uh, outages uh, w- within the same year, that you know you would see the financial impact of it directly in our business. So like we. We do a lot more alerting uh, early on before that the impact, like this queue is uh, climbing up or the number of retries go up, like what, what is going on? Is that something that's going to fail if we don't address or so like each of those create, uh, generate an alert and someone responds to it to monitor what's happening to prevent an outage, prevent a customer impacting incident. So there's quite a bit of those, but you know, the, the muscle to like figure out what might be causing that is something that only happens with it. Like that's why we call like six to 12 months, depending on the seniority of the, the developers to get that because they know if this queue is building up, it's typically something there, right? Like, oh, we're sending text messages and the Tivilio interface is acting up. Uh, like that's what's causing this. Uh, those type of things, you can write them down, but like you're not going to able to read them like uh, when there's an incident. So it's a, you know it has to be like a muscle memory almost to in some ways. And if you get there, even if it's middle of the night, you look at some of the alerts and assess. Uh, oh, this is a big problem. Priority one incident go, or you know you can snooze it till the morning, and then the in the morning it would notify you again. Hey, like there was an incident and so on. If it's still active, you can take a look at that, or whoever is on call at that time can take a look into it. So it's a assessment, and the right level of response is really what they need to figure out. And experience is the only way to gain that. It's interesting. I think that I heard you say something like, "So we have this queue, and if the work backs up, we want to spin up more nodes, and maybe we could automate that." But if we automate away all of our minor incidents, then nobody knows how to run an incident. So you actually, yeah, that is a very like that's exactly what what we see, which is interesting. So like the and and the automation in two ways. Like one, people don't have the experience, and the two, the automation has problems too. Like so that uh, <laughs> yeah. the more complex that automations get, the uh, like you know the the most problematic uh, incidents that we you know I had seen. There was some kind of automation that went haywire, like the <laughs> more more so than the uh, the actual problems. Like so, it's uh, you know, what's an example of automation going awry? 
one of the things was like the retiring, the, you know, like ramping down after build up, like you added nodes and capacity. And when it was doing that, it messed things up. So there was no instance left that was accessible. So the, you know, the process to ramp, I mean, right now it's like AWS has far more stable systems for auto scaling. Uh, early on, we had our own mechanisms. So it would scale up. Uh, scale up was tested much more than the scale down. So during the scale down, the logic got messed up and uh, it took the systems out of the balancer and like, they were no longer, it looked like they were there, but they weren't serving traffic. Uh, so we had a, you know, sort of a semi outage there. Like it was the, you know, one instance left had to handle all the loads. So like, I mean, this is code as well. And uh, it's a very hard to test code if you're writing automation, uh, like the, all the edge cases is hard to test. So that's why when a cloud provider like AWS has those things, they generally gone through a lot of, you know, lots of customers using all the edge cases and stuff. Uh, when you do your own automation, I think there's a, high, a higher degree of risk in there because it's hard to find all the edge cases and test them. Like it's not necessarily software, like they have to fail in certain ways. Uh, the chaos engineering discipline is trying to sort of uh, address that. Like the, there is a growing in the last uh, few years uh, discipline around uh, chaos engineering that uh, essentially you introduce failures into the system uh, regularly mm -hmm. to, to make sure that the system handles that. So if you have you know, failover, multiple regions, all those type of things. Uh, what if happens if I remove one server, five servers, whole data center, like availability zone? If you're doing those, again, it, it builds muscle to, to do that. And I've seen customers even do sort of a, like a packet level ones. Uh, one of my uh, companies I'm involved with uh, have software that introduces, you know, the delay, like the, if this service gets overwhelmed and it starts slow, slowing and slower, what is the impact of that on the other services? So like the, you know, it, it introduces a delay on the response of that. And then you kind of observe what is happening, right? Like with the microservices, the interdependency and is increasing a lot. So you're testing all this in production really is the only way to do it because you have the actual loads and actual uh, um, data in there to, to be able to see it. So we are evolving, uh, but I think the complexity of uh, the, the systems and the speed of change, like it's going faster than we can adapt our processes and the, the, the disciplines. Like all this stuff is uh, fairly new to to tackle all this complexity. Like how do we deal with this? How do we, uh, because, you know, microsystems essentially or microservices the complexity is moving to the production. You know, it's all in the production, like as opposed to in the code, like uh, where you have debuggers. And like we have tools in a complex application when it's a monolith, but uh, when it's all in pieces, it is a distributed monolith in some ways. Uh, and there's like all <laughs> these uh, uh, unexpected uh, interactions between the systems that uh, you can only tease out by in interjecting some of the failures. Uh, so I think that will grow in, in time uh, as, you know, again, maturity level, right? Like you, the organizations typically start from like, when something happens, I want to make sure that someone is aware, like that's the first step. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's where Opsgenie started. Like that was the, you know, seven years ago, uh, how do we ensure that I can sleep? And, you know, I know that the system is going to wake me up. But then, like, okay, you wake up and you don't know anything about the system, you're not going to be able to do much. So providing context around the, the incident uh, are similar ones, uh, like from the past, to taking a look. Collaboration, like finding the right person, you know, it, it grows uh, in time. But most organizations are still fairly new to this. The incident stuff, uh, management process, uh, if you, a typical organization would tell you when you say incident management, like, what, what do you think of? They would think of the ITIL, uh, ITSM type incidents, which is really the user reporting it. Like the, a user calls in like, hey, I can't get to the finance application or it doesn't work, whatever. And, the, you know, you open up a ticket, you escalate to somebody and uh, like they eventually, you know, take a look at it. The urgency level is very different than like the I can't afford downtime. 
I must instrument instrument uh, my application and monitor from outside so that like when there is a problem, I get that to the right person, which is typically you want to get to the developer responsible for that part of the application because they are the best equipped to assess the problem and solve the problem as opposed to a generic ops person that, you know, you have hundreds of applications in an enterprise. So I think that in itself is a is a change as well. Yeah. That the developer is the person to talk to. Have you found that to be a hard cultural change for people to make? Yeah, it is. It is very hard. I think this part of the cultural change that the DevOps movement tries to make it easier, you know, like how, how to make that change. But it, it is very difficult. Uh, uh, the idea in this case is that uh, whoever is building it, you, you build it, you'll run it, like whatever, uh, you know, there are a number of different ways to address it. But uh, is the person the best equipped to solve the problem? And because you want to minimize the time to restore, you want to find the best person as quickly as possible. Uh, so the developer becomes much more critical in the process. Uh, like in most organizations today, uh, traditionally, the incident management is organized to minimize the amount of work done by higher uh, skilled people. It's not organized around time. It's more like, a, so you have a first level support, may create a ticket. If they can't solve it, second level, third level. So you have, uh, you know, high cost, high uh, quality that people that you can use elsewhere. So you don't want them to just do incidents. So you, you try to protect them. Yeah. And that paradigm completely changed. Now you say like it's optimized around time. Like I want to go straight to the person that knows the best so that they can solve it as fast as possible. That is very difficult change because rightly it's a, uh, it, puts a lot more demand on the developers uh, and not uh, every developer is, uh, you know, there's different lifestyles that uh, like, you know, being on call is a, not a easy thing, you know, that uh, especially if it's not done right. If you're on call one week out of three weeks or four weeks or something like that, which we've seen, that's a lot like, the, you know, and especially if the system is not stable and you get notified, like, you know, get alerts uh, at night, uh, it is a problem. So like there's all kinds of things you can do to reduce that, but there's going to be some extra burden. So I've seen all kinds of pushback and uh, the change, but, uh, you know, there is some options, but not really that many, like the geographical uh, distribution helps. Like if you have teams in Europe and Asia and US, uh, you minimize the off-hour time so like the teams can pass on. Like Atlassian is fortunate in, in, in that sense. Like we have teams in uh, California and Australia, as well as, uh, you know, we are in Turkey. So like you can kind of uh, pass on the baton for the who's going to take on the incident, uh, which, you know, it helps. But even with that, like not every team has members in different locations. So within your team, you might have to be uh, on call uh, and uh, if you're on call, you can't leave home or like you have to walk around with your computer or whatever it is. Uh, like it's not a, if you haven't, if you, like if you're going to a job, knowing that's the requirement is different than your company is going through a transformation is now you're expected to do all this. Uh, I find the organizations have a lot more trouble doing that transition to the existing culture, right? Like because uh, it's it is different. Like before, you would do it, then you pass it on. Like you go home, versus like you you are not responsible for the the operation of that. Having said that, I also find that uh, there is nothing like being the one on call when there is uh, something going wrong uh, to motivate you that uh, you know you better <laughs> do, do a good job. Uh, like uh, in it's it's basically that uh, responsibility and uh, awareness doesn't come naturally if you're not the one. Uh, and I, I always like push the, the managers to be on call as well. Like it's like, I, I don't care that you yeah. can't fix anything. Like you have to be <laughs> woken up and uh, be present uh, to appreciate the, like when, you know, we are talking about the uh, priority of the, you know, investing in reliability versus like features to make the right decision. You really need the, everyone to feel the, share the, pain so to speak like once i've seen something explode then when they're saying we should build this new feature i'll be thinking well wait wait i don't want to be paged again 
sadly yes sadly like <laughs> if you're not the one waking up uh, it doesn't make the same impact like the you know <laughs> it's uh, like i mean we 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 live through this internally like it's uh, like you really appreciate why it is important like the opportunity team has this concept uh, it's not special to us this definition of done that uh, like after you write the code then you run the tests and uh, uh, a peer reviewer would ask a bunch of questions like what about this did you think of this and stuff like this so that you get to definition like the done by yes like we've looked at all that uh, because the cost of not doing that is someone waking up at that you know nighttime or uh, on call being much more painful and you appreciate more as a developer it's just uh, if you are the one uh, experiencing in the first first hand that's like yeah if you know if you don't pay attention to quality uh you, you know you're gonna get impacted the friction typically is with the management you know like the that yeah. uh, making decisions on like where to uh where to put the time uh, so that's why like one of the techniques is is the like you know you have to have a incident manager and one of the managers have to wake up like when this happens even if yeah. all, all they're doing is you know taking notes uh, it's fine uh, and that that helps with the empathy i think to decide like where where we put our time and effort uh, next <laughs> that's a, that's a battle hardened cultural tip make the managers <laughs> on call yeah. yes yes so if i'm a developer and join ops genie or wherever like so what's the expectations how often am i on call what are the expectations when i'm on call we've we settled with a system that works uh, really well i think and the um, you are after the first couple months. Uh, you are on call uh, from in your team during the day. We call it. We have concept of day on call. Uh, so you, you you know within a month or two you are uh, day on call, which means that you're getting alerts. You have to figure out what's happening and then uh, address the problem. But that uh, sort of a uh, trains you in the sense. Uh, and in that sense, you only need to know your teams, like whatever the services that your team owns, like that domain. In time, you're expected to learn other domains because our night on calls are expected to, like we don't have a night on call for each team. The night on call is responsible for the entire system, which means they need to understand enough to isolate where the problem is and bring the, the right team from that. And that's a you know higher degree of sophistication that the, the person needs and that's typically why it takes at least six months to get there often nine months or up to a year then the reason with that like, with that is we have i think in our team like about 15 people who are uh, night on call uh, qualified which means that uh, you are not on call very frequently like it gets in you know once in three four months one week out of uh, three four months uh, lower if you can't do that then it's like often more on call that we find the problems with that. If you're on call like every a week out of a month or, you know, like too frequently, uh, it, it is harder to do. So we opted up with this system that it takes time to get the person there. But when they're there, they're on call uh, at nighttime, but not very frequently because they know the entire system and we share the on call. So we have like two different, you know, we have an SRE on call and a, uh, sort of an application, a product on call person, uh, as opposed to each team, each of the 11 teams that we have having on call. And that someone being able to address multiple domains made it less frequent. And then this like compounds to many different things. Like for this to work, you really need to have low turnovers. Uh, so we, you know, like uh, we have low turnover, so we can, if, uh, we, you know, kind of optimize for that. Like we don't want to people to, you know like if you're getting developers in and out like this model wouldn't work uh, so it you know encourages you as the organization to invest more into into the you know keeping the developers uh, longer and and you know making sure they have the right tools and so on so it can change the entire dynamics of the organization to to be able to handle like the on call in an organization has implications beyond what you might initially think like the how the you know, everything from compensation to, uh, you know, how you uh, organize the teams and so on gets impacted by this when you have always on 24-7 critical services to, to support. Interesting. If I'm on call, I'm the night on call, 
you know, something happens and I, I track it down to some, you know, some service changed and some, something else didn't change. Yeah. Should I be, you know, opening up my IDE and trying to make extensive changes to, to address things? No, the, the, I mean, if it's in that level, you probably first need help. Like the, you know, you shouldn't be doing it yourself, but we typically go for the restoration of the service as opposed to fixing the problem. So it's often, uh, can it be rolled back if it is something to it, like if it's a recent change uh, and that's typically a much lower risk kind of a thing than uh, fix. We almost never fix it at that time, unless there's no other way to do it. That's why like you, you want to make a change during the day and observe like everything is working. If it's something new, the hardest ones to handle are when you're making a change that is not reversible, like you're changing the schema data structure. So you can't just roll back the code mm -hmm. that those are hard. So you don't want them to break at night time. Uh, <laughs> like if that happens, I think it is a, it is quite hard to handle, but often roll back to a previous uh, stuff is, you know, fairly uh, straightforward. We have Slack commands for all those, like the how to, you know, do those things. They can typically run a few commands and uh, restore the service. And then, you know, later on, we can look into what went wrong. Uh, so it's often like restoration of the service takes precedence over fixing what the problem is. That's asking too much, I think, like, the, you know, under pressure coding is it's for movies. I think <laughs> we don't want people to people to do. <laughs> so the, the cheat sheet for for being on call is make sure your manager's on call as well. And then just always hit rollback. That's the that sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think uh, I, I basically say, like, whoever makes decisions, you, you want them to feel the like what is it like uh, with a high pressure incident when you know uh, you have thousands of customers impacted it is i mean it, it messes up the person so like you don't want anyone individually uh, shoulder that you want people to uh, as well as you know like not just the managers but the, the peers and the, the, so opportunity team has always been very very good at that like when there's something you typically like you push a button and there are, you know, four or five people, whether they're on call or not, jumping in. If it is serious to, to prevent the outage, it really depends on the expectation on the service. Like it's all about business requirement. Like if it's not, if you can live with it till the morning, don't obviously, but, uh, you know, we have increasingly more and more services like ours that customers have that cannot afford downtime. So organizations are trying to adapt to like how to operate without burning people one of the organizations i worked in in the past uh, with the, they had an operator that was responsible for getting to the right person as opposed to our software doing it and he said basically like so what do you do you call like i go you know i look and then like i call and uh, we you know we looked at the records and like he was calling john you know there were like four people in the team and 70 uh, percent of the time it was john that was called like well why is this well, John didn't yell yell at the guy the, for for calling them at <laughs> night, so he was the nice guy. So they just kept calling John. You know, the other guys were, you know, cranky like at nighttime, whatever. So the, and especially if it was a false alarm, they like they were not happy. So they they gravitated toward this one person, right? Like so, it's not fair uh, that uh, you know John was a nice guy, so <laughs> he didn't yell at them. So he, he got called a lot more than the other people. So the, there's a lot of unwritten procedures and stuff that builds around this because of this high stress nature of that. Uh, some of the managing with a software in an equitable way uh, takes that like the, uh, after using the software, it says, I want to uh, notify the database team. They don't decide like who in the database team, the database team decides who that night and how it escalates. And uh, uh, so it takes off the pressure on the person who needs to, raise the bell so to speak to notify people so it, it helps quite a lot yeah so it makes sense to have all this planned out to in peacetime as you call it to, to figure out who yep who gets called during what times yep so what do you do after the incident how do you learn from this yeah so postmortems as it's uh, commonly called or better name maybe post-incident uh, review or analysis is the you know we're trying to move to those like less 
morbid uh, names uh, <laughs> on that uh, that process. But you're is, already using the wartime peacetime. Metaphor, that's right. So. Yeah, <laughs> the, the terminology is quite uh, dramatic uh, <laughs> in this area. Like every incident is really a huge opportunity to learn. If you have the right culture, uh, which is, you know, like this, you may hear the blameless postmortems. Uh, so instead of, you know, focusing on whose fault it was to like uh, identify the systematic uh, issues, like the what caused it, like, even if it was someone pushed this button, like why did they push that button? Like the, it's not, uh, it's often easier to push the blame onto a person than, you know, tackle the systematic issues. Uh, so the postmortem is like, you know, there are different ways I've seen uh, companies, you know, five whys is a, is a method used in Atlassian, like to keep asking questions to where it is. Uh, our software also tries to facilitate this. You know, you can generate something that uh, takes all the information that happens during the incident, like when the alert came, like when was the, the conference started, you know, who was in the conference, how long they spent as time uh, in there. So like you can kind of get a sense. And all the like different milestones that people enter during the incident becomes a record in the post-incident uh, uh, review. But then, you know, obviously people still need to talk about like why that happened and so on. Uh, so in our world, you know, in the Atlassian world, uh, Opsgeni would generate a report and publish into Confluence. Then the rest of the work can be done with comments there, people adding stuff. Uh, and there might be issues to like the, as you were saying, like you know, instead of fixing that, like uh, after the incident, uh, there are changes to be made, and the Jira issues will be created that linked from the post-incident review to the Jira issues, so that incident managers can trace that uh, to make sure that they are uh, resolved in a timely manner. So, in mature organizations, this process post-incident review is a significant process like it's a whole workflow that needs to happen with uh, people uh, different teams participating in it there is a good quote from allspa that one of the people who are uh, you know sort of leaders in this space about like one of the ways you can track the maturity is judging from how many non-technical people attend the post-incident reviews or like the attend or participate right so like if the managers or the, the sales whatever like just not the engineers but the other people the more they get involved uh, like it's a signal that the organization is actually learning from the that and the participating uh, which which I, I find in personal experience true as well the uh, it's typically if it just stays technical like uh, it's easy to like it's a this Technology is buggy, and that's why it happens. Like, <laughs> like it, you know, you can pigeonhole and, and move on. Uh, it's often uh, learnings are sh diminished in that type of uh, attitude. So it's like uh, you try to make it more as open as possible is one of the best practices, I think. Like the oh, and comprehensive to to learn from that. It's an opportunity that should not be missed to mitigate from uh, the risk of happening again. What comes out of this? incident review process? Like if I've done this well, what's the value? So it's typically, you know, there's a report, uh, there's a follow-up actions that if it is a bug, it's obvious that you would have a follow-up action to fix the bug, but there are also actions that, you know, typically addresses the resiliency. Like this happened, it will look at the, why did it take us half an hour to identify the problem, right? Like the, how do we reduce that? Why did it take 20 manners to gather the, the right people, like the process improvements. So those are the follow-up actions that the, the report and the, the actions that comes through, that gets widely, I think, disseminated in, in the mature organizations. I read quite a bit the post-incident analysis reports that the teams that come up with. Again, you would learn quite a bit like from what other teams are doing as well, because you can find single point of failures there. You can find process uh, inefficiencies. Uh, if there are people, you know, burnout or the like, the, you can find those things, uh, identify, and uh, I think the there are a bunch of actions to address those things, the underlying structural issues to prevent. Often, the in our world, again, this is different. In the past, the same incidents would happen repeatedly. Okay. So you can you can have this first level, second level, third level. Uh, the first level support will, oh, this is the same incident, and now I know what to do, and I, I fix that. Yeah. In our world, the same incident almost never happens twice because you something happens, and then you go fix the bug. 
the next one will be different. What will be the same is the structural issues that's causing the, the response time, how long it takes to identify the problem. Those things are, you know, stay the same. So if you focus on those, like the process issues, you know, people are empowered, all those things that impact, that's when you start making, uh, I think, gains against how long it takes to solve or even prevent the incidents from happening is really that process that as opposed to like this bug in this application, that bug is fixed. It's not going to happen again, but there's going to be something else uh, that will happen. I take it if the same incident is happening again, I don't know, you're probably not taking the right actions or something. Yeah, if, if the same thing is happening again, that, that's a much bigger problem. Like that means that you're not addressing the underlying issue for whatever the reason. And it, sometimes it's the... Uh, you can't replace the technology that easily, so it keeps causing problems. Uh, but it tells you if you like the. We have a lot of uh, reporting tools to analyze the past incidents alerts to unearth some of those as well. Like, look, we are getting a bunch of things from this technology, like whether it's an application or a, you know some kind of database or you know external service you use, whatever it is. If you can gain the insights that's causing you know, you you can prioritize whether you want to replace or invest more into stabilizing it that's kind of a part of the post incident like these are again like stuff that you do in in the peacetime like analyze your data for insights like what's causing it you know what is the response time of different teams like these are all questions you can ask the data we collect in opsgenie to optimize the process basically and learn like why why things are happening you know if same people are getting notified like you know their own call system they might be underpowered or like they don't have enough senior people that can take the burden like uh, those are i mean you know developers are hard to recruit and you want to retain them like if if you're causing burnout like you're hurting yourself so like any kind of uh, early signs of those that you can detect because people sustain the that kind of punishment for a while, but then they just quit, right? <laughs> like, you know, so you can't wait yeah. till they complain about it. Not, not every developer complains loudly. It's important for the management to pay attention to how the sort of a developer's health in that sense that are, are the processes sustainable in that sense that, uh, you know, you're not burdening people. What do you think the biggest mistake is that organizations make as they're making this transition to have a process? I think the biggest mistake is the underestimating the the cultural aspects of it. We have a quite a bit of a tendency to lean on tools as a solution to this. The the cultural change is you know often in almost every part of the business harder. You're expecting quite a bit. I think we are expecting quite a bit of a change in people, uh, especially if you do those without involving them into the thought process like why this is happening how it's going to make better and it happens to them uh, I, i've seen the biggest problems in the organizations that someone decides to adopt devops you know <laughs> and then like pushes the organization you're all devops now and uh, you know you're on call whatever uh, there's huge problems with that as opposed to the team sort of uh, reaching to that conclusion or at least you know even if it is not fun to do like they appreciate that it needs to be done uh, that consensus like building that uh, like the, the fact that it increased productivity in the sense that you have less unplanned like the, the the stuff that we talked about in the beginning it's unintuitive but it reduces the unplanned work like all that uh, not building the consensus in the organization uh, and the you know involving the the change necessary it gets underestimated and then, you know, it kind of blows up later. That's the biggest problem that I've seen. Yeah, there's definitely some unintuitive aspects of it. I was wondering, it seems like, you know, incident management process, you talked about firefighters. Like traditionally, this has kind of been the domain of emergency services. Yeah. So why is this becoming important in the, in the world of software? Yeah, I think it's it's part of the... Uh, software is eating the world, uh, you know, concept, right? Like it's just our dependency, reliance on software is increasing in a very rapid pace. That makes a lot of sense. 
software is becoming much more important and there's lots of places we can learn from. So I know that Atlassian put together an incident management handbook that probably goes into a lot more details. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Birgit, thanks so much. This has been great talking to you. Uh, this is Adam Gordon-Bell, and thank you for listening to Software Engineering Radio. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.